A century ago, 100,000 Sydney ciders took to the streets every weekend for over six weeks. It seemed that everybody in Sydney nearly would be in the domain on Sunday. They marched on weekdays too, although their numbers were smaller. And they would be calling out, will we go back to work? And they'd all yell out, no. Almost daily, crowds of people met near Central Station and marched to the domain. No. Can we milk their cows? Yes. Thousands of men, women and children carried banners, chanted and sang rousing songs. So how did it begin? Who were these people and why were they protesting? I'm historian Leila Elmus and this is The Great Strike of 1917, an original podcast from the city of Sydney. The Great Strike of 1917 was one of the biggest industrial actions Australia has ever seen. On the 2nd of August 1917, almost 6,000 rail and tram employees walked off the job. Most were from the Everly Railway workshops and the Randwick tram sheds in Sydney. Almost one-seventh of Greater Sydney's population was on the streets. If the same proportion marched today, you'd see over 700,000 people. You'd need more than 15 full Sydney cricket grounds to make a crowd that size. The Great Strike began in response to a new time card system that added a layer of management. Promises had been broken. The workers felt betrayed. Leslie Best was a 19-year-old shop boy at Everly. Well, they, uh, they all went out. They all down tilled one morning and went out. I was a junior member of the iron workers at the time. And uh, if you're out for six weeks longer than that, the most of the seniors were, were put off. They were sacked. Two-thirds of New South Wales tram and rail workers down tools, and it spread to other industries, towns and cities across Australia. Eventually, almost 100,000 workers went on strike. A hundred years ago, Sydney was a very different place. While today, five million people live in the greater metro area, in 1917, the population was just over 750,000. World War I was in its fourth year. There were heavy casualties at the front. At home, the debates about conscription had divided Australian society along class, gender and sectarian lines. Poverty was rife. The cost of living had gone up, while wages had stayed the same. War weariness had well and truly set in. There were government and community fears about a possible insurgency by the industrial workers of the world, known as the Wobblies. The Randwick tram sheds was seen as a particular hotbed. Edna Ryan was a teenager at the time. There was a very strong anti-British feeling in Australia right throughout the war. It was that feeling that turned down conscription. Whilst uh, there was this anti-British feeling, 
there wasn't any hostility to the forces, to the soldiers, to the actual individual, because they were our brothers who were going off as soldiers, and, including my own brother, and a lot of lads were pressured into going one way or another. You see, we would have not only been reading about this, we would have been reading about the Russian Revolution. And I'm quite sure that the Russian Revolution had a big impact on the working class in Australia. We knew about that. We knew the soldiers were leaving the front and throwing down their arms. We wanted our boys to do this too, you know. There was an enormous consciousness raising of the working class that I miss today. I miss it today. I'm used to a class-conscious working class. A socialist conscious working class. The war, the upheaval in Russia, Ireland's bid for independence, and other industrial strife at home and around the world made it seem like things could change at any moment. The government was worried. They had passed the Unlawful Associations Act, which outlawed the Wobblies, and sent a message that the government would not accept dissent. The new time card system that sparked the strike was seen as an affront to the skill and craftsmanship of the employees in the workshops at Everly and Randwick. Management wanted to add a new layer of oversight that would track exactly what workers were doing on the job. Imagine if a new manager was introduced at your workplace whose job was to sit and watch everything you did. Harry Vallander, secretary of the Amalgamated Society of Engineers, wrote to his sister... There are three kinds of cards being used for the purpose of time recording, red, white and blue. Each represents a different class of work. The subforeman, sitting at his desk all the time, carefully watches and checks all the times by his watch. We never see the cards ourselves, as he keeps them carefully pigeonholed. The new cards meant management could track everything workers did, more closely than ever before. The cards would then show bolts 1 inch 14 screwed, So you can see that in the course of, say, 12 months, they would then have a complete record of every piece of work and the time it takes to complete. For Edward John Kavanagh, the Secretary of the Labor Council of New South Wales, one of the objections was that it was the thin edge of the wedge, the beginning of changes to work practices. It was a breach of faith on the government's part, the Premier, Mr Holman, having promised at a patriotic gathering at Everly Workshops that existing conditions would not be interfered with during the war. The men, on the other hand, agreeing not to make any undue demands for increased pay or alteration of conditions. The men kept faith with this agreement, but the government did not. The strike spread through black bans and sympathy actions. A black ban was when trade unions and workers refused to distribute products handled by strike breakers like coal, meat, butter and sugar. Newtown-born Ada Salmon saw the strike firsthand. We were waiting for the tram and coming up was the miners marching and they were all black and, and everybody, women, everybody was marching. And I never knew much about unions or anything, miners, I never dreamt of miners and things. And, and he asked the man, he says, oh. And she says, they're the miners. I said, what are they doing? She said, they're all on strike. So that was the 1917 strike when I remember that very through the miners coming and I never ever dreamt that I'd be a miners' wife. 
Sympathy actions mobilise workers across a range of industries, extending beyond the railways and tramways, including gas workers, coal miners and carters and draymen. These were the people who transported goods around the city. At its peak, rail and tram workers made up 23% of those on strike, while 46% worked in mining or were involved in shipping and waterside work. Edward John Kavanagh again. The employers, backed by the government, are taking full advantage of the surplus labour and hungry unemployed and are putting the boot in with a vengeance, regardless of the misery and suffering of the innocent women and children. Never in the history of Australia has there been such a callous vindictiveness shown towards the workers, excepting perhaps in the convict days. Surely such treatment will cause the workers to wake up to a full realisation of their position and power. If it does, and the power is wisely used, then may we truly say, out of evil cometh good. For six weeks, 100,000 workers were on strike and thousands more were marching in the streets of Sydney every day. But even with so many people out for six weeks, the strike didn't end the way the workers wanted. Bernie Johnson was a kid living in Surrey Hills when the strike was in full swing. Uh, I lived in only one street back from Surrey Hills, and when the strikers used to march past, going down Elizabeth Street, they had the, the army and tramway band, you know, beautiful band, and hundreds of blokes marching behind it. And then as time went by, the, the, the band gets smaller and smaller, the crowd gets smaller and smaller, until finally we was just a ragtag rabble going past, you know, in the finish. And that, that was a bitter thing because it divided the working class completely. The strike made it harder to live in Sydney. There were food shortages, power blackouts and limited public transport. It was awful. But everything stopped. Bread was, wasn't being made, um, trams and trains ceased. Living was impossible for those particularly who didn't have any reserves. People with enough money to foreseen that it would happen had accumulated flour and sugar and so forth. But it was very, really a very bad time. Oh, yes, uh, 1917. You couldn't get sugar. But I remember it. Oh, yes, I remember. You would get coupons, food coupons, and you could take them to the butcher and the grocer and you would get flour and, and um, that's how they sort of struggled along. I just remember having no, no transport for all those weeks and having to walk to work and back again. Walk from Sydenham to uh, down the bottom end of Druid Street. The whole place was on strike, you know, trains and trams, everything. And my cousin and I would get started off to walk, to work, and uh, along comes a, a trolley, you know, with a truck, and, and he says, come on, girls, get on. And uh, we got, because being young, you just thought it was wonderful getting on and having a ride with a lot of trolley and horses, and all horses in those days. And we thought it was great fun, so that's how we got to work in the 1917 strike. On the other side of the political divide, striking during wartime was considered unpatriotic and disloyal. Thousands of middle-class men and women, farmers, university students and schoolboys attempted to break the strike. 
Depending on your allegiance, strikebreakers were known as loyal workers, volunteers, scabs or blacklegs. Arthur Emblem was 19 when he came from regional New South Wales to break the strike. They called for volunteers and there were 8,000 arrived in Sydney in a week. I was one of them. I was camped out at the domain and then at Taronga Park. Taronga Park was just being built. And uh, we loaded boats, carted wool, <laughs> guarded the trams. The strike breakers were housed in camps at Taronga Zoo, Dawes Point and the Sydney Cricket Ground, nicknamed by the strikers as the Scabs Collecting Ground. Foreman Crawford was a farmer from northern New South Wales. As we went to our work, we'd be taken by uh, tram or, or by a motor lorry or something uh, to our work each day, and we'd see the strikers' wives as we went through the, some of the suburbs uh, scratching themselves, uh, and they would sniff and they'd smell the gum leaves. Uh, of course, they were ridiculing us all the time. Students from Sydney University joined the strike breakers. Hazel Walker was 21. The boys ran the trains, the engineering students ran the trains, and we worked in the restaurant, the, the railway restaurant. We as students thought it was great fun, <laughs> doing something different. <laughs> it wasn't that the work was so hard, it was that it was so new. We had to learn it, you see. But, uh, of course, the hours weren't uh, so bad and, uh, and we had meals provided for us and all, all in all, the volunteers were treated very well, I, I would think. But uh, we had good meals uh, given to us, as much as we needed and probably more. And uh, looking back over it, I think what a... Uh, a wonderful job uh, the organisers did, you know, in uh, carrying out this volunteer uh, organisation. We loaded the ships in three days where it took the wharfish five days. And we had a lot of brushes with the wharf labourers. One occasion I can remember we were loading a ship at Piermont I think there was about 250 volunteers and as we knocked off at five o'clock there were about four or five hundred strikers lined up outside the fence waiting for us. <laughs> we were willing to go out and have a go but of course we weren't allowed to do that but uh, it got a bit serious and they called the army out. and. Uh, I think about a hundred army fixed bayonets and they moved, <laughs> the strikers moved on. Although there were scuffles, verbal abuse and some physical violence, this was the exception rather than the rule. The main complaints were about language and hooting, with the most potent term being scab, which still has power today. 
as time went on, we found each week they got a little bit weaker. Eventually, some had to go home, some wait till it was over, but uh, we could see that the strikers were weakening all the time. With no income, the strikers and their families relied on food and supplies from Trades Hall, or did without. Although it lasted just six weeks, the toll was immense. The lack of food and transport, the hardship and the anguish. By mid-September, the Strike Defence Committee gave in to the Railway Commissioner's demands. The efforts of the strikers had failed, but its legacy would affect the life of many working people for decades to come. It created a highly politicised workforce from which a generation of politicians would later emerge, including a future Prime Minister. Bill O'Neill worked on the railways. He was 17 when the strike broke out. I noticed that when I first went to, to, to Griffith, because I became associated with drivers then, being the shunter. I became associated with enginemen. And one thing struck me, and being a bit inquisitive, I later made inquiries from a driver who I became rather friendly with. And he was an older man, and he was a, a junior fellow, a fellow junior to himself, was, a, was the driver, and he was the fireman. So I said to him, uh, how come you are the fireman and he's the driver? He's younger than you are. Uh, and he told me the story that he was a striker in 1917. This other fellow was a loyalist. He had, he had, he had, uh, union term, he was a scab. 1917 scab, that's what he was. Uh, this Bill Wilson, uh, he, he came from the Newcastle Broad Meadow area. And he, he, did, uh, he was doing his penance after them being coming out in the 1917 strike. And uh, that went on for some time. Many of the rail and tram workers didn't get their jobs back. Those that did found they were demoted. John Mongan was only 11 when the great strike happened. But he came from a railway family and in the 1920s came face to face with tensions in the workplace. Well... On the running staff, when you were on the steam locomotive, you worked on goods trains in particular some long hours, see, 10, 11, 12 hours. And uh, you're on an engine with the fellow, you went to barracks, you cooked your food and you sat opposite him at the table you eat, you slept in the same room, and if you was away from home three or four or five days like we used to be, you were with that man more than what's up with your own wife and family. And if you had been a driver reduced and you were firing for a fellow that was much junior to you and getting more money, how could you be other than resentful? And you can imagine the atmosphere when you'd be stuck together and sitting in each other's lap practically for 11 hours on the locomotive and eating together at the same table and sleeping in the same room. It was a, it was a very nasty situation for in the years that followed, many strikers felt they had been victimised, which in turn created working lives filled with conflict. Oh, well, I used to get uh, 
a little bit fed up at times because they used to hark, hark, hark. I said, listen, I wasn't on the job in 1970. I said, if you hate that bloke, OK. I said, now, I've got to work with him and I find him all right. I said, so just uh, leave me to, to run my race. It was estimated that strikers lost around £1.8 million in wages. That's around $160 million today. In its final days and straight afterwards, destitute women and children relied on relief doled out by the Women's Relief Fund at Sydney Trades Hall, and later a fund set up by the Lord Mayor of Sydney. The strike highlighted a split in the labour movement between rank-and-file workers and trade union officials. More than 20 unions were deregistered. It created a generation of politicians, most notably Ben Chifley, who later became Prime Minister. He was an engine driver at Bathurst and a Lillywhite, which meant he stayed out the entire six weeks. Everly workers Joe Carl and Eddie Ward also entered politics. Carl, who has an expressway named after him, became Premier of New South Wales. Ward was an alderman on Sydney Council and served in federal parliament for almost three decades. I think this is an important moment in Australian history that's faded from the collective memory. There are many theories about why we've forgotten this strike, that it's been overshadowed by the war and the conscription debates, or because it was unsuccessful. But this anniversary gives us the opportunity to reflect on its place in our national story and learn what it tells us about ourselves. What's changed since 1917? Why is union membership at an all-time low? Are conditions better? Or as a society, are we more comfortable dealing with workplace issues individually rather than collectively? Could we get that many people on the streets today? What would make you go on strike? I'm Leila Elmis. Thanks for listening to The Great Strike. If you want to see what it looked like, the City of Sydney has some amazing images and footage online. You can find them and more information on the strike at thegreatstrike.sydney. That's greatstrike.sydney.